Welcome to another Dividend Kings Roundtable podcast. This week's theme is This Time is Different, famously called the four most dangerous words of finance. Now, it's important to remember that all, all investing returns and income is generated in the future. But as Chuck Carnevale points out, we have to use the past, the present, and the best available estimates about the future to make reasonable and prudent decisions with our hard-earned capital. Now, Mark Twain famously said, history never repeats itself, but it rhymes. And so, in, in essence, what he's saying is that historical trends can be a good roadmap to potentially what is likely to happen if similar fundamentals hold up. Now, of course, we know that there are secular macro trends that are essentially like permanent super cycles. For example, the US transitioning from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy, now to a service economy. As the Bank of England points out, falling interest rates for seven, over the last 700 years. And it, 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 to a small extent, rising market valuations. If you look at, for example, the S&P 500's average PE since 1871, it's been 15.8. and because the U.S. has become a more diversified economy, there's been, um, now things like 401ks and IRAs. More people are participating in finance. We have globalization and foreign investors, and of course, better accounting standards and just uh, stricter regulations so that there's less risk in investing. The modern era, 25-year average PE is around 17. So that's a 1.2 multiple expansion which is not as significant, of course, as many uh, investors in this current TINA uh, market bubble have expected. And of course, there's uh, in, more actionable and pertinent to many Dividend Kings members is industry secular trends. Things like the tra uh, gradual transition to green and renewable energy. Of course, falling cigarette volumes, which has been a trend that's been persistent for 50 years and is expected to continue with even tobacco companies saying that they, their long-term plans call for selling zero cigarettes. Coal, of course, is being replaced uh, in, for baseload power by natural gas and renewable uh, uh, eventually, once energy storage is cheap enough. Of course, retail uh, REIT investors have, no, have seen that for the last decade, essentially the death of the department store and the ch shift to retail to omni-channel and more uh, integration with online sales. Healthcare regulatory reform is something we've seen for the last 40 years. And so all of, the, all of these things are very important to keep in, in mind because they will generate risk profiles for any given company. Now, these survivors, of course, are going to be the best run companies, the strongest financially, the ones with the best balance sheet that have the financial flexibility. So it's the speculative yield traps that you want to avoid. The companies basically that have dividends that are barely sustainable by cash flow or sometimes not even not sustainable uh, covered by cash flows and balance sheets so levered that Essentially, they have no safety buffer. If anything happens, such as this pandemic, an ultimate black swan event for many industries, they essentially, they, we saw in retail where already dozens of major retailers, such as Lord and Taylor and Brooks Brothers, companies that have existed for over 100 years, have just gone the way of the dodo and are now being bought out by bankruptcy by the likes of Simon and Brookfield. And so with that introduction and the 
fact that even uh, Templeton and Marx, two of the greatest investors in history, have uh, mentioned that 20% of the time, this time really is different. Let's pass it off for a discussion about various industry trends and what that can mean to prudent long-term investors, such as Dividend Kings members. So uh, I'll pass it off to Brad Thomas for his take on the state of the retail industry uh, as, as it pertains to retail REITs. Great. Thank you very much, Adam. And I will say without a doubt, this time is different, um, especially in retail. Uh, so I just finished the chapter in my new book on retail. Um, and this was probably the hardest chapter of any book that I've ever written. This is my third book now, uh, The Intelligent Read Investor, second edition. And it's a real, this was a real difficult chapter to write. Um, so obviously included in that chapter, uh, I've discussed uh, shopping center REITs, mall REITs, and of course, net lease REITs. And as you all know, uh, this sector has been extremely brutal uh, for investors, but we found some really attractive opportunity as well. So let's start with really the mall space, which has news every single day. It was yesterday. I actually published a, 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 a breaking news story on Tiffany's. Um, and as you may know, Tiffany's is a retailer we're all familiar with uh, in the diamond business. Uh, I've been to Tiffany's uh, primary uh, location in New York City on Fifth Avenue. I've been to Tiffany's down in Chile and in uh, Latin America. And I've been to Ch uh, Tiffany's has a freestanding location in West Palm Beach, uh, right down there uh, on, uh, on, the main, on the main drive. Um, and so Tiffany's had a deal with, uh, with LVMH, which is, of course, Louis Vuitton. And by the way, I read a really great book on Louis Vuitton. The history of Louis Vuitton is extremely interesting. Look for that book on Amazon if you really want to get into some deep reading. But so LVMH was going to acquire Tiffany's uh, in a deal that was going to be uh, roughly $16.2 billion. Um, again, all of this was uh, done pre-COVID. And of course, net yesterday it was reported, I believe, by the Wall Street Journal initially that Tiffany's, uh, excuse me, LVMH was backing out of that deal um, uh, due to trading uncertainty, but just say COVID-19. So will the deal get retraded? Who knows? There was a sm slight sell-off yesterday, not as bad as I had anticipated. Uh, I am looking for to own Tiffany's. I've owned Tiffany's in the past. I like Tiffany's. I love diamonds, uh, but still price is expensive. The deal's either going to get retraded or more than likely there'll be a new purchaser coming to the table. We'll see. We definitely think Tiffany's will find a home at some point. Then that begs the question, will, Simon's buy, will Simon buy Tiffany's? And I started to think about that, you know, especially in light of what we saw today. Another breaking news story. I didn't report it, but it was JCPenney's. Now, this had already been reported, so maybe it's not breaking news that JCPenney's was going to um, uh, potentially convert to a REIT. JCPenney's obviously a, 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 a very troubled department store chain. And so basically the, the, the summary of those parts is um, it's in court. It's in bankruptcy court. The creditors are looking to potentially spend some of those properties into, believe it or not, a REIT. And then some of those properties that are industrial into a, another REIT. Um, and again, this is proposed. We're going to be writing about it. Um, but uh, And then Simon and Brookfield are also going to inject capital to be take an operating position, conceivably, in the company and also 
retain their real estate. So it all boils down to real estate here with J.C. Penney's. That's kind of the musical chairs unfolding. There's a lot of moving parts in this deal. Um, I really question the, whether the REIT vehicle benefits a individual investor um, in a J.C. Penney's REIT because the creditors are essentially, if this deal happens, the creditors would essentially be equity holders in the J.C. Penney REIT. When you, I've never developed them all, by the way. Um, I've, my wife shopped at plenty of them, and so have I. But they're very complicated. Hundred million dollars, department stores, shops, cross easements, uh, common area maintenance, um, co-tenancy clauses. Now, thus far, we've seen many of these mall REITs are somewhat successful at redevelopment. We've seen Washington Prime. We've seen Simon. You know, these guys know what they're doing. They're pros, no question. But if you're going to own a JCPenney REIT with JCPenney properties, and by the way, the, the way the deal is structured is, uh, I think it's $120,000 of rent on average for the first year, but at a 50% rebate discount for the first year. So, don't, there will be hardly any dividend yield in this proposed JCPenney's REIT. But here's the issue. Again, underlying issue is what do you do? Because many of those stores are going to go vacant. There's, there's a very good chance that JCPenney's will not be around forever. And so what happens? How do you redevelop these deals? When you're, when you're sitting there in one ownership structure and you've got all these other owners that own the rest of them all, and that have co-tenancy agreements and cross-easement agreements and all this met, all this minutia you have to unwind. It's very complicated. On the other hand, let's move to net lease. I had a had an interview yesterday with the CEO of Realty Income, Sumit Roy. And by the way, we we have that video on Dividend Kings. And one of the key things that Sumit said in this, this interview was really interesting because one of our subscribers had asked, what, what happens? if a theater goes dark. And so this was the question posed to Sumit. What happens when AMC closes a store? How do you, how do, you do that? How do you manage that, that, that risk? And he made a really good point, especially in light of the point I just made on JCPenney's proposed mall REIT and mall investing in general. And that is, it's real easy when you have a freestanding property. You don't have other co-tenants you don't have other cross easement agreements. There's no common area maintenance agreements. We have to prorate costs for operations and sweeping and landscaping and all this mess. And so it's very simple to develop a freestanding uh, theater store, a theater, excuse me, if, if it shutters and closes down. And obviously we all know Realty Income has got a fortress balance sheet. They've got plenty of capital to redevelop and they've got amazing diversification because they don't have that much exposure to that subsector of, of, of net lease theaters. Whereas EPR has roughly 50% exposure. And of course, Top Golf and these big ticket items uh, that are, are really continuing to struggle uh, here. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough, Adam, I guess to answer your question here, it is a, it's a volatile space. There is opportunity uh, in certain of those sectors and subsectors. On the shopping center side, we're still somewhat selective here. I still think, you know, there's there's going to be pain. There are restaurants that are still struggling. New York City is going back to 25% capacity. But what about the other 75% capacity? There's a number of re restaurants that I think are going to continue to shutter that will not make it. Uh, that concerns me. And so we're, we're, we're really maintaining that cautious conservatism 
in the shopping center space. Obviously, we like names like Federal Realty, who have the liquidity is the keyword. They have the adequate liquidity to manage through this through this cycle. So, again, it is different, very different. And I don't know how retail. I don't know what the next chapter is going to be for retail, but it definitely is going to be different. And for that, I'll turn it over to my good friend and and a colleague here at Dividend Kings, uh, Nicholas Ward. Yeah, thanks, Brad, and uh, happy to be here. Brad, I do have a question for you. You know, we're talking about the uh, you know the changing landscape in the real estate space, uh, kind of especially with regard to the retail. I think uh, you know most of our subscribers at this point are well aware of the uh, issues that the mall space has had. You know, we've seen uh, Simon, for instance. Uh, you know, probably the bluest chip company in the space. They did have to uh, cut their dividend. What do you think about the the viability of the mixed use? Uh, property development in that space moving forward. I mean, we've talked about, uh, you know, the difficulty of making use of these very large footprints. But, you know, when I do think about this sort of, uh, you know, self-sustaining uh, communities, the sort of live, work, play, uh, you know, mindset that some of these developers have with regard to having office space, apartment space, and uh, retail and entertainment space all in the same area, do you think that uh, is going to be enough to kind of save some of these, uh, you know, large footprint developments, or is or is that uh, not a big enough uh, bullish, uh, you know, tailwind in your opinion? Yeah, that's a great point, and uh, you know, I think the underlying answer to that is summed up in one word: demographics. Certain markets that have the dense populations are going to do much better at densification uh, within, especially a failed mall type situation, or in the case of Federal Realty, you know, what they've been able to build with their really trophy assets. So if you, as you all know, Federal Realty has become more of a mixed-use landlord over the last really decade, uh, thanks in large part to Don Wood, who's an excellent CEO, in my opinion. But he, he saw this vision. He knew this company needed to become more diversified and increase its uh, residential exposure and other, other retail exposure. So, uh, but again, they're in gateway, very high-profile, uh, densely populated markets. Uh, conversely, I'm in a town, I live here, and I'm actually sitting here in a town called Spartanburg, South Carolina. We call it Sparkle City. Uh, somebody did. That's what they call it. Uh, but uh, I won't say it sparkles that much, but anyway, that's another story. But I live a mile from Westgate Mall. My wife used to work there. She worked at J.C. Penney's. little known fact. Uh, I didn't know her then, but that mall I drive by every single day. Sears is closed. And guess who owns the real estate, by the way? This has not been reported by the mainstream media for whatever reason. Um, guess who owns that? Eddie Lampert's LLC. We did some digging and we found out that right in during COVID, Eddie Lampert, okay, the pension, the Sears pension. Who owns that now? Eddie Lampert LLC. We tracked it all down. It's right there, black and white. So that Sears is owned by an Eddie Lampert entity. It's the, the mall is under a ground lease. Uh another layer of complication. And then CBL, of course, owns the mall. Very tangled web. And the point of that is, Nick, I think about this because, you know, I walk by that, I drive by that. Um, and I think, you know, okay, I'm putting my developer hat on. What can I do here? Well, the market's not big enough for Top Golf. There's a Top Golf in Greenville, and it's there's not enough people to support a Top Golf, in my opinion. Maybe a drive shack, but still, I, don't, I mean, they're about the same. Uh, so I don't see that. I could see some apartments, maybe, uh, and I could see maybe some student housing. We've got a fairly decent student population here, Wofford Converse College, maybe some apartments. Um, but but the point of that is, Nick, the trade area, 
we call it the MSA, which is the Metropolitan Statistical Trade Area, whatever they call it, the MSA, uh, which is really a formula for, for marketing purposes for a lot of retailers to determine what their the, the size of that market is from a marketing perspective. But the MSA in Spartanburg is only like maybe under 300,000. And so the MSA in Greenville, Spartanburg is over a million. And guess who's in the middle of that MSA? Simon Properties Group. So it really comes down, Nick, I think to supply and demand, demographics, I think is an underlying key. And yeah, a lot of these can be redeveloped into alternative uses, but you know, it really depends on the underlying demographics. And I believe of those 1,400 or so malls in the U.S., and I believe Green Street came up with that number, don't hold me to it, but I think that's where it originally came from. 1,400 malls in the U.S., you know, this, in my opinion, and we've done some studies, maybe it's half of that. Maybe half of that stays malls. And so that's really what I see happening. And, you know, it's hard as a REIT to be able to manage capital because REITs are, by law, have to pay out 90% of taxable income. So it's very hard to manage that, you know, grow that dividend, certainly, even pay that dividend and have adequate capital to reinvest in mixed use. So it's a, it's a challenge. On the private side, I think there's plenty of opportunity. And I'm sure these private equity firms are scrambling right now around to buy up, you know, these types of assets because they've come, they've gotten so cheap. So, um, but it's, I would say, Nick, on the, on the public arena, which most of our audience, you know, invest in public companies, um, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, mixed use is, is a challenging, uh, challenging business right now, but demographics matter the most. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, you know, we've talked about federal realty. We're both bullish on that company. I think we've both been buying shares personally, uh, recently. And, uh, you know, they focus on those demographics, you know, the high income households, as well as the population density of those, uh, kind of well-to-do clients. So, uh, that does make sense to me. I guess I'll, I'll use this sort of discussion on the demographics to, you know, we're talking about this time, it's different. One of the kind of major secular trends in the market today, uh, it's existed for, you know, a while now for for decades and decades is urbanization. Um, I saw a report, I was trying to look up some data on this. In 2009, the United Nations said that, you know, for the first time, uh, more people across the globe uh, lived in urban environments as opposed to rural environments. And uh, so that was when that trend um, began. And then in 2018, obviously, this is prior to COVID, prior to some of the headwinds that we've seen recently, uh, the UN published a report that said that by 2050, they expect that 68% of the world's population will live in urban areas. And they're talking about kind of the development of these mega cities, uh, you know, especially as the 5G revolution comes into play. And, uh, you know, as, as just the world becomes more sort of uh, digitized and everything becomes more efficient, uh, COVID obviously happened. And then we've seen a lot of headwinds with regard uh, to the cities. You know, th- there's more been more disease spread. There's the jobs have, have been hurt more in, in big places like New York and L.A. Uh, there's been a lot of talk of a sort of uh, urban exodus, and that has kind of hurt, uh, you know, some of the apartment REITs, obviously the office REITs, and uh, just a lot of just other sectors involved. So. I don't, uh, you know, my opinion is that this is uh, just probably likely to be an isolated incidence. You know, I don't see COVID changing this multi-decade trend of just people moving to urban areas. Uh, you know, there seems to be a lot of entertainment value in cities, uh, networking, all, all of the benefits of cities. You know, I live in a rural environment. I live on a small farm here uh, outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. So, you know, I'm obviously 
not a city dweller myself, but I do see the appeal, especially for young professionals uh, and also for people, you know, trying to kind of climb the social ladder in developing economies. So uh, I guess it's my opinion that the this urbanization trend is not going to end. I think that some of these fears regarding the exodus are overblown. Uh, I've been bullish on the apartment REITs because of this. I've been buying uh, Essex property as well as Avalon Bay. Uh, I just recently published a, an article with Brad on iREIT about the uh, Mid-American uh, apartments company that uh, they do obviously have a very high quality portfolio. They're sort of located in the Southeast, but I think they're a little expensive. But I did want to pass uh, back to either one of you guys, I guess, chime in uh, as you will. You know, do you guys, what are your thoughts on uh, the urbanization trends? You know, do you think that this time is different? Is COVID really uh, you know, change this, uh, you know, trend for the long term? Or is this, uh, you know, an isolated incidence in, in your thoughts and sort of what sort of investing, uh, you know, implications do you think it has? Well, yeah, I, I've been thinking about that as well. Uh, I've been listening to uh, various business podcasts and they've been, they've had uh, uh, basically various companies that are tracking the residential real estate markets. And what's, what's interesting is that we, well, uh, as we know, some companies like Facebook and and some of the high tech names out of San Francisco have mentioned that they're willing to allow telecommuting potentially permanently. Uh, they will be changing the pay based on where people move. But that we've seen some trends of basically uh, a lot of people moving to, for example, Austin has uh, it's been a budding tech hub uh, in Texas for a while. It's in fact uh, nicknamed Silicon Prairie. And the thing to remember is though that. Even while telecommuting is something that that you know we've all adapted to and relatively successfully uh, through things like Zoom, the the thing to remember is that there is a reason that offices existed in the first place. Uh, you know, the technology sector, for example, since the financial crisis has been growing around nine percent per year. The fact it's really been driving most economic growth in the United States, and these uh, tech companies like Facebook, like Google. You know, uh, Microsoft, the cloud computing giants, these uh, pioneers in things that, you know, the, the reason they're being so successful in this pandemic, you know, they could have allowed their employees to scatter across the country or even the world to just live wherever the costs were lowest and just, you know, work virtually uh, in, in a virtual office. But they chose to cluster together. And we've seen the same things in terms of networking effects, for example, like for, for the last 10 years, you know, Wall Street could have easily dispersed around the world. Technology could have done the same. And yet they still cluster in hubs. And the reason for that is because studies show that the, the greatest innovation, like 90% of the, of the uh, ideas that generate the best returns on capital over time are things that are not generated in pre-planned meetings. You have to talk to colleagues, just throwing ideas around. That's the basically how you get uh, true innovation that really changes the game. And so that's why we're seeing places like Austin is now seeing some accelerated growth. And so what that means is that we might see uh, instead of one or two major hubs like Silicon Valley or uh, New York for Wall Street, we might see more hubs 
Uh, for example, like Connecticut is uh, seeing some acceleration basically in, in uh, private equity. Florida, of course, we've seen acceleration in terms of asset managers moving there because of lower taxes. And, you know, tech hubs uh, like Austin, uh, various places like the Research Triangle in North Carolina, they're seeing some acceleration as well. And, you know, the, the uh, in terms of how does that affect things like apartment REITs? Well, you'll basically have like the strongest names like uh, Essex, Mid-American and Avalon. Now, some of them have uh, clusters, of course, they're focused primarily on the coast, but they have the financial, uh, you know, these are basically, you know, uh, like Avalon is an A-rated REIT. Uh, Essex is a triple B plus stable rated REIT. They have the balance sheets to diversify into those markets that if people do permanently start to move, not essentially just like, uh, you know, I've seen some articles saying, you know, New York is dead. Well, no, New York is not dead, but we might see uh, a bit of a, you know, it's, it's basically uh the extremes are almost never true. It's almost never as bad as uh, bears think or as good as the bulls think. It's all uh, usually somewhere in the middle. And so we might see uh, you know, uh, more mid-sized second tier cities uh, thrive uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, it might be a part of it might be a temporary surge. And then, you know, once the pandemic is over, uh, places like New York and L.A., they, they are hubs uh, for entertainment and culture for a reason. People do value the ability to go out, to go to the theaters, to, to go get uh, entertainment, to basically to socialize. Humans are social creatures. That's not going to change. This pandemic is not going to change that. Uh, and so companies basically like Avalon, like Essex, Boston Properties, for example, which I and Brad are rather bullish on as, as the best in breed name in office. It has the resources to uh, get out of those gateway cities if it if it finds the, the uh, basically that it has to. And so that's essentially one of the ways to protect yourself from times when this time may not necessarily be completely different, but there might be some permanent secular changes from this pandemic. And so if you own a high quality blue chip with a strong balance sheet, access to that low cost capital. Uh, as I've explained several times now in the weekly recession updates, the interest rates for corporations investment grade are at the lowest in history, close to 1.9% right now. So, it, you know, adjusted for inflation, it's almost free money. And so the strongest companies with the best management, which is what uh, Dividend Kings and I read, you know, we all primarily uh, point out those names to consider. Those are the ones that can adapt and overcome. And, you know, one, one of my favorite quotes of all time that's very pertinent to this discussion of this time is different. It's from Brent Bishore, uh, founder of a, a permanent equity, a private equity company. Quote, all businesses are loosely functioning disasters and some are profitable despite it. At 30,000 feet, the world is beautiful and orderly. On the ground, it's chaotic and confusing. Nothing ever goes to plan. Surprises lurk around every corner. Things are constantly breaking. Someone is always upset. Mistakes are made daily. Expecting anything less is being out of touch with reality. And remember, just because you're now aware of it doesn't change reality. It was that way before. You just didn't realize it. And so the point is that, yes, there's many challenges from this pandemic. Some of them will be permanent, but a, a competent management teams with a good track record of adapting and overcoming to challenges and doing successful turnarounds 
with strong balance sheet is your best bet to essentially be able to buy quality companies at discounts to fair value and high margins of safety. And now I'll pass it on to Brad, who I believe also has some uh, uh, comments about this important uh, topic about urbanization and how the pandemic is affecting it. Great. Thank you. And thank you for those great comments, Adam, as well as Nick. And again, I think I know we've touched on a lot of real estate here. And I just want to remind you that commercial real estate represents 17% of the total investment market. That's the third largest asset class. So 43% bonds, 37% equities, and commercial real estate, 17% of the entire investment universe. So I know we've touched on that. And again, this real estate is not going anywhere. I, I, I say this a lot, and I, I don't mean this sarcastically, but real estate has didn't get COVID-19. You know, when this sell-off happened in March, I kept reminding people, you know, this real estate, the value of this real estate is not going to go, is not going the way of the, of the stock market. The market, you know, obviously was acting irrational. And so there's still opportunities there, but you're right. You absolutely have to look at things like supply and demand, of which urbanization is really a big part of that, is where are those people going to live? Where are they going to work? Um, you know, there are REITs like Stag Industrial who invest in secondary markets like Greenville, South Carolina, where I, where I live and, and, and work, uh, or markets like, or, or excuse me, REITs like City Office REIT, which is a really compelling REIT because they do invest in these secondary, uh, they call them 24-hour cities, or something like that, and but they're in secondary markets, the Tampas of the world, the Denvers of the world. So I think you're going to see that shift. But I completely agree. We're we're very bullish. You know, I haven't been in New York City in oh seven months or eight months. I think the last time I was there was December. I talked to my daughter about every other day and get the updates. Um, I was talking to my publisher this morning at Wiley, and they're based in Hoboken, New Jersey, just across from New York, from Manhattan. And you know my uh, my publisher, the lady I work with, she's still working at home. She said probably January. My daughter's still working at home in in uh, the Upper East Side. She's going to work through this year at home. So you know, but eventually, you know, you're going to have to you're going to get back to the office. What I see unfolding, and I think uh, Adam mentioned this or, or Nick, is that a lot of these companies are probably going to go to s- satellite offices in the secondary markets and spread out some of that space. So some of that space may not be as demanding in the New York City. You may not need, you know, 300,000 square feet on Park Avenue. Maybe it's 100,000 square feet on Park Avenue and a 50,000 square feet in Austin and 50,000 square feet in West Palm Beach. There's a new apartment, there's a new office building across from our office in West Palm. And I've watched it every time I go down and the building's gone up. It's vertical, related. One of the bigger developers uh, in the country is developing it. And, and Adam's right, a lot of that uh, occupancy is, is from hedge funds that have moved down from New York, primarily due to taxes, and now the building's filling up because of COVID-19. So I think you're going to see that shift underway, uh, but you've got to follow those, you know, follow those markets. And again, you know, we really look in real estate at supply and demand and, and where those opportunities are. The last thing I want to say is, uh, I want to touch on Tanger real quick, because uh, something came to mind, you know, uh, open air. I mean, we've seen now since you know March, April, May, June, July, August, how 
occupancies have improved in the open air environment. You know, Kimco, all these shopping centers and Tanger have seen traffic increase, uh, occupancy back up to um, almost full occupancy, rents are recovering. So, you know, open air is certainly recovering. We've seen that. Um, restaurants are starting to fill back up. Um, so, again, we're seeing these these things come back here. And I think that that, that trend will continue. Um, New York is there. We're certainly, I'm in not only Boston properties, but Empire State Realty Trust, as well as SL Green. Um, and I think all three of those will eventually uh, be fine. So that's that's really uh, where I'm going to uh, end it today. And I guess I'll, uh, Adam, I'll, I'll let you uh, finish up. I know you started it. We'll let you end it. And uh, I want to you know, thank you all for uh, for being on the on the podcast today. It was great. Well, actually, I think that uh, Nick wanted, uh, he had some uh, insightful uh, commentary prepared about the energy industry, which, of course, has been a brutal sector for the past decade. Uh, it's really been a lost decade for uh, energy prices since they uh, peaked at crude about $140 a barrel in 2008. And so I wanted, uh, before we uh, conclude, I wanted to pass it off to Nick so that he could uh, get those insights out and maybe we could have a, a bit of a actual. Uh, actionable discussion about the midstream space, which I know has been a major concern for con uh, high yield investors. Yeah, thanks, Adam. That, that, yeah, when we discussed the topic of, you know, is this time different and just things that were changing, uh, energy came obviously to my mind right away. I've been a pretty uh, notable bear for the energy space for a while now. I've, um, you know, I'm, I'm not invested really personally. I do own shares of Enbridge. That's the last of my. Uh, energy holdings. I've sold the rest back in 2015, 2016. And, uh, you know, I've, this has been a somewhat unpopular opinion amongst, you know, many of our dividend growth and income oriented uh, investor, you know, readership and subscriber base. Obviously for decades, you know, popular names like Exxon and Chevron and and the midstreams that you're so, uh, you know, adapted covering have, you know, been favorite investments, you know, so when you give various opinions on these things, you know, it's it's a, it's a little contrarian and it's not what people want to hear, but I have felt very strongly about that and I continue to do so. Uh, I, I will talk about those really quick. Brad did mention Stag Industrial when we talked about kind of the secondary markets. And I did, you know, we've been talking about high level things throughout this podcast, but, um, you know, I think giving kind of actionable investment advice is important as well. So Stag also came to mind when Adam was talking about these secondary cities growing up, as Brad said, Stag. Uh, owns industrial properties, but they don't invest typically in the primary you know, kind of gateway markets. The you know the LA's, the New Yorks, the Boston's. They own uh, secondary property markets. And I did want to mention right now that the company is trading for you know roughly 18.8 times AFFO, which is at the high end of its historical range. Uh, but it does pay a monthly dividend. The FFO has been uh, pretty steady. Uh, AFFO is only expected to drop one percent here in 2020. Uh, which is, you know, pretty great performance. Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of REITs kind of struggle to generate rent. It isn't happening with STAG. Uh, so it yields 4.4%. I think the stock may be a little expensive right now, but uh, Brad mentioned it and I did want to cover that because I think this is a pretty interesting opportunity, you know, when we're discussing these kind of macro uh, secular trends with regard to urbanization. But moving back to energy, as Adam said, it's been a really tough space to invest in. Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, fact sets did release their, uh, their, their most recent sort of, uh, earnings insights, you know, going over expected, uh, earnings declines in the third quarter and, uh, energy leads the way there. 
the altar for FactSet uh, said the energy uh, is expected to post the largest decline in earnings year over year at negative 106.6%. So that's pretty incredible. Um, You know, they're expected to see just overall negative earnings from the sector. Uh, All of the kind of subsectors are expected to post uh, pretty massive uh, negative reportings, you know, gas and export, gas exploration and productions at negative 125%, oil and, gla- and gas refining and marketing at negative 100% expectations. Uh, the big integrated companies are expected negative 117%. Uh, oil, gas, storage, and transportation is the only area of the energy space that analysts have kind of short term uh, bullish expectations for that area of the, that kind of subset of the area um, of the market is expected to go at 3%. And then we're also expecting to see, uh, or fact set, the kind of analyst uh, consensus is expecting to see uh, revenue decline by more than uh, 25% in that area. So, you know, and to me, you know, I, I mentioned that I live on a farm. Uh, it's a small farm. I, I've worked on much larger farms. I grew up uh, here in Central Virginia. It's a pretty rural area. You know, Charlottesville is kind of a, a little, you know, mini city here and that's surrounded by a bunch of farmland. So I have experience uh, working on farms. And to me, you know, when I think about energy, I think about kind of the uh, commodities markets with regard to agriculture. Uh, you know, people get excited, uh, you know, when corn or when when pork or any of these things go up, you know, where I live, where the prices go up. But the problem with these markets is, is that the cure for high prices in the agricultural market is is basically the high prices. And what I mean by that is when the prices get too high, uh, all everybody else starts planting, you know, corn or starts, uh, you know, soybeans, whatever it is, and then product supply goes up, prices go back down, and the market corrects itself. So it's hard to have kind of secular growth with those secular uh, cyclical trends going on because you know the market can kind of dictate supply with production and the development of uh, you know fracking technologies. You know, uh, we've seen kind of the American boom in fracking over the last decade. That's that generated us in this uh, in energy independence, which is awesome from a kind of you know national security and uh, standpoint. But you know, the supply that we're seeing across the world, including the U.S., is really hurting uh, the oil prices, and I don't really expect that to really alleviate itself in the near term and maybe ever because, you know, the same thing we're talking about corn and soybeans. If the price of oil goes up, uh, we'll simply turn on more wells, generate more supply, and then the price will go back down. Uh, You know, this really hurts some of the large companies. We've seen Exxon's balance sheet uh, really erode in recent years. You know, I published an article calling for a dividend cut uh, not that long ago, and it it, kind of showed a graph that uh, mentioned back, you know, in 2006, uh, Exxon had you know roughly 33 billion in cash on hand compared to uh, roughly seven billion in debt. So we're talking about a net debt position of you know negative 26 billion. Well, you know, flash over the years, basically every year the company's cash position has declined since then. Its debt position has risen, and uh, you know now Exxon has a net debt position of of uh, at the end of uh, 2019, excuse me, it had a net debt position of roughly 44 billion, and that's just increased. Uh, throughout this year, so you know, I'm just seeing uh, pretty massive headwinds with these low oil prices. You know, we you know, we talk about break-evens in the fifty and sixty-dollar range for some of the big integrateds like Exxon and Chevron to be able to sustainably pay their dividends. I don't see oil rising to that area and staying there for very long. Uh, I certainly don't see it rising above that to you know, the eighty, ninety, hundred-dollar range that we saw, you know, what five or six years ago. So, you know, I think these supply and demand uh, trends are kind of creating a secular issue for the 
energy space, in my opinion, this kind of lower for longer is here to stay. And that doesn't bode well for uh, a lot of the companies in this space and especially with regard to their dividends. But, uh, you know, I know Adam is, is a big fan of uh, at least the blue chip names in the midstream space, and he's the expert in that space. So I am looking forward to, uh, you know, I'm obviously pretty uh, bearish on energy as a whole. And uh, so I'm, I'm interested to hear what Adam has to say about, uh, you know, reliably increasing dividends from the midstream space. Thanks, Nick. Uh, some great points to make, uh, especially the the essentially I, how I view oil, the oil industry from the production side, the so-called upstream producers uh, like like Exxon, like EOG, like uh, even the highest quality uh, blue chip oil producers. I kind of look at it like the auto industry. I am not a fan of that because it's a highly capital intensive commodity. Uh, industry where basically there are no uh, wide moats and it's extremely challenging to generate sustainable and steady dividend growth over time. And to give, provide some I- interesting context, I just recently read since 2009, so for basically the last decade, U.S. oil production in terms of uh, British thermal units, uh, it was the it was about 19 quadrillion uh, BTUs. Uh, the equivalent of all the energy that India used in uh, 2019. So it truly, as Nick said, it was remarkable the the uh, energy renaissance in terms of energy independence from the U.S. Uh, before the pandemic, the U.S. was the largest producer of oil, gas, and natural gas liquids in the world, even more than uh, the Saudis. But the problem is that while the industry has thrived in terms of production, cash flows have not. The Wall Street Journal, I believe, did a report a few months back that uh, over the last decade, it's been close to negative 400 billion in free cash flow for the fracking industry, meaning that that, uh, the companies basically overspent to increase production at all costs by 400 billion over the actual cash flows, they had to take on debt to do it and low interest rates allowed it. Well, right now, basically the bond markets are absolutely not having it in terms of lower quality oil producers. And as Nick alluded to, even the highest quality names like Exxon, which was recently uh, still, I believe, double A rated, but they've recently got, uh, they're on a negative outlook. They got a downgrade recently. I think they were double A plus. Now they're just double A and uh, potentially headed to double A minus. And that could potentially continue to slide simply because it's it's essentially, you know, it's like a hamster wheel. You have to constantly spend just to maintain production. And your your cash flows are completely at the mercy of, of basically commodity prices, which is supply and demand. And even the greatest management teams in the world and uh, analysts consider, for example, Exxon and Chevron to have the, the finest quality management in the industry among the integrated giants. But there's simply nothing they can do. And for uh, to give you a, an example for Exxon, what went wrong, Morningstar was uh, extremely bullish on the new CEO's plan about increasing production basically by about 25%, a, a million barrels per day by 2025. It was going to potentially boost cash flows by uh, between 50 and 150%, depending on oil prices. And so, uh, essentially, after the first oil crash in 2014 through 2016, most big oil companies simply slashed capex and production spending to the point that Exxon said, "We're going to skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is right now," and that we expect that there's going to be a major supply crunch in the future. 
And so that's what they were spending on. So they were spending up to 30 to $32 billion a year on increasing that capacity by 25%. It was a great plan. And then COVID hit. And then the Saudis got into an oil price war with the Russians. Now that only lasted a few months. Now OPEC uh, plus Russia plus uh, every other major producer got together for some uh, major production cuts. But recently that's been seeing some stress uh, some compliance issues that people starting to overproduce again. That's what recently caused oil to fall about another 15% off its recent highs. Now the IEA is basically saying they don't expect uh, demand to get back to pre-pandemic levels for another two or three years, depending on how the pandemic goes. And so we're basically looking at the oil futures market saying that out to 2024, they're expecting basically by the end of 2024, oil prices to be around $46. Well, that's that's about $9 higher than it is today. But as Nick alluded to, while the break-even costs for companies like Exxon, especially in the Permian, uh, as, have gotten as low as $25, the problem is to service that debt and maintain that dividend and that dividend growth streak, which the, uh, Exxon has now basically missed uh, its regularly scheduled dividend hike by about two quarters, I believe. So they have a couple more to potentially you know, preserve that streak with a token increase. But really, it's they need around fifty to sixty dollars to basically make it sustainable and start deleveraging that balance sheet. And the problem is that the, the first oil crash of 2015, you know, this one is uh, coming up relatively soon. So it's a very stressful situation because this pandemic, for example, IHME, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, uh, they, their four month model says that uh, globally, not just in the US, but globally, we're looking at a potential second wave that could see daily cases rise five to six fold. Now, no country is uh, expected to actually lock down like they did in March, so it's not going to be another oil apocalypse. Uh, that's not a likely scenario. But in terms of hurting uh, economic growth, potentially we could be seeing some double-dip recessions. 80% of economists now expect a 25% probability of a potential double-dip recession. And so that's essentially creating that uh, catalyst for potentially lower for longer, as Nick was uh, alluding to. And so, you know, midstream, uh, in terms of the... There's uh, 11 safe names on the safe midstream list, uh, technically 12, though BIPC and BIP are the same thing with 20% midstream exposure. But in terms of the safest recommendations that we uh, recommend, uh, the Phoenix list only has five names, Enbridge, Enterprise, Trans uh, TC Energy, formerly TransCanada, Pembina Pipeline, and uh, Brookfield Infrastructure, BIP, BIPC. Those are the only five I would consider uh, touching. They all have triple B or triple B plus stable credit ratings, very strong uh, infrastructure. S&P has done several notes on them recently and basically said all of them have certain key characteristics in, in common. That's the first, they're self-funding. They have zero need for equity issuances to fund the CapEx growth plans that at this point, everybody has been cutting back. Uh, it's around 35, 40% uh, CapEx cuts. And uh, Enterprise, actually, uh, the highest conviction name we have, uh, the consensus among all analysts is it's the strongest, safest, and best well-run with the best asset base. They basically just announced that they're canceling the Midland to Echo 4 pipeline, which uh, Mizuho, one of the most respected uh, independent analyst firms, just said that it, they'll save about $800 million uh, over the next three years from CapEx. And management has said that that uh, can go be diverted to buybacks, increasing by about $150 million is Mizuho's uh, four 
forecast for uh, basically fiscal 2022, about $450 million a year in buybacks. Management has also said uh, through investor relations that they're considering uh, uh, once again restarting the distribution growth on a quarterly basis. Now, of course, they're, they're not making any promises because they're going quarter by quarter, which is prudent in these times of uh, unprecedented uncertainty. But uh, in terms of analyst expectations for enterprise, they're expected to basically uh, maintain a frozen payout through 2021 and then start growing it again in 2022. Uh, they have about five quarters uh, that if they hike by any amount, they can extend that 21-year dividend growth streak uh, and keep on that path to becoming a dividend champion, which management has said is a goal they have that will be four years from now. But uh, as S&P was basically saying, uh, other than self-funding, the balance sheets are so important. Leverage uh, for all of these safe midstreams, the highest, I believe, is currently around four and a half for Enbridge. Five or less is considered safe for, by investment grade for investment grade credit ratings uh, from the rating agencies. Four and a half uh, is currently the highest they have for Enbridge. Uh, all of them expect to be basically between four and four and a half over time. Uh, enterprise expects to be at around three and a half times leverage. So we absolutely love to see that very, uh, in times like these, you cannot be too conservative enough with your debt. Uh, the other thing, of course, that is important is the cash flow because what bond investors and credit rating agencies care most about is can you service that interest and can you repay the principal? Their bond investors are the most conservative investors on the planet. Preservation of capital is their obsession, not just their passion. It is their obsession. And if you look at it right now, all five names that we recommend, again, EPD, ENV, TRP, PBA, and BIP, and BIPC, uh, same thing. All of them have stable outlooks, very diversified cash flows, long-term contracts. Most importantly, generally 90 to 98% uh, investment-grade counterparties. So not just the likes of Exxon and Chevron, which of course are not actually going to go bankrupt. They're going to be able to pay those uh, bills and you know pay those contracts, but even regulated utilities. So investment-grade regulated utilities, are, for example, buying the gas from uh, Enbridge, which also happens to be the largest uh, gas supplier to uh, Toronto and Ontario. So you know, very highly diverse business models, geographically diverse, vertically integrated, not just, you know, for example, focusing on gas or focusing on oil, but you know, focusing on oil, gas, NGL, storage, exports. They just have their, their finger in every part of the basically fossil fuel infrastructure. And so that's essentially what uh, is why uh, analysts are expecting uh, most of these safe uh, midstream names uh, like EPD to maintain uh, through this uh, pandemic and start hiking in 2022. TRP and ENB are expected to hike. Enbridge actually has one of the fastest growth forecasts right now at around uh, 6%. Management's long-term guidance is five to seven. So analysts are basically saying right in the mid-range, 5% hike expected from Enbridge would extend that uh, dividend growth streak to 25 years, make it a dividend champion. And then in 2022, a 6% hike is expected from analysts according to FactSet. And so basically, you know, we are absolutely focused on the opportunities, incredible values. I mean, enterprise Price, for example, even in the six-year uh, industry bear market, where they've actually grown their cash flows by 6% annualized over that time. So uh, distributions were growing, cash flow was growing, leverage was falling. Uh, and uh, you know, EPD just borrowed 32-year bonds at 3.2% yield. So again, the, the bond market, the most conservative investors on the planet, the so-called smart money on Wall Street, 
absolutely loves the safe blue chip midstream names. They have uh, confidence in their cash flows and ability to pay those, uh, make those interest payments. And so those ones are the ones that we are focused on. We've bought uh, Enbridge uh, a few times in recent weeks. Enterprise, we've been buying, uh, I think, once a week for the last three weeks. Just you know, it's trading basically at six times cash flow. That's half the average that it historically has had. And that uh, 12 times average uh, market determined fair value on and uh, on EPD, that's included the last six years in the worst bear market uh, in industry history. So, you know, it 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 is of course you know tough to imagine uh, midstream going up in the short term. Uh, analysts say that uh, tax loss harvesting, which has become an annual tradition, that could put some short-term pressure on them, uh, on stock prices. Of course, election uncertainty, that's something that could potentially cause uh, some short sellers to try to pile on. Now, it's important to point out that CNN just reported, Biden just gave a speech where uh, he specifically said, you know, I have no plans to ban fracking. Let me repeat, I have no plans to ban fracking, no matter what you've heard. So, you know, it's important to remember that it's not as bad as many uh, bears think, but we are certainly facing some challenges. Uh, cash flows are expected to basically trade flat, uh, around flat for midstream for the next two years or so. Buybacks are expected to potentially start next year, which can drive some organic growth. And of course, we're looking at those very safe payout ratios. For EPD, it's 65%. For ENB, it's 69. 83 is the safe level, according to analysts, for self-funding midstream. And so, you know, we're watching those very carefully. Make sure those payout ratios are low. Make sure those leverage ratios are low. The coverage ratios are strong. Strong investment grade uh, credit ratings with stable outlooks. And so, you know, I, I watch it very closely because we we own uh, currently EPD and ENB. Uh, we also have some PBA as well as Brookfield Infrastructure. Uh, TRP, we haven't yet bought, but it is a potential uh, coming up in the next few weeks. But essentially, uh, yeah, uh, as I said, you know, this time isn't necessarily different in the sense that energy isn't going anywhere. Uh, McKenzie, for example, estimates that by 2050, still around 72% of the world's total energy will still be coming from fossil fuels. Uh, essentially, the issue is that uh, emerging markets, their economies are growing so much, energy demand is growing so much that uh, fossil fuels are still going to be uh, there for the next few decades at least, which you can see with the bond market recently buying uh, EPD bonds 32 years at 3.2%. Obviously, they would not be buying any bonds if they thought EPD didn't have stable cash flows for at least the next 32 years. And so, you know, we have certainly, you know, a long-term horizon for the next, you know, 10 to 30 years at least for safe midstream to continue generating safe generous and growing distributions and dividends over time. But you have to absolutely focus, like in this recession, I and Dividend Kings, we are buying nothing but blue chips. We will not even buy AT&T or Walgreens, which are merely above average quality because we are so fanatical about risk. Well, it goes doubly so for energy. Midstream is the only uh, subsector that I would recommend. Uh, the closest thing to an oil producer we're considering buying is actually, nat uh, it's called National uh, Fuel Gas. It's actually a dividend king utility that's actually about 40% oil and gas production 40% midstream and 20% regulated gas utilities. And essentially they are one of the most fanatically conservative in their balance sheet. Their average debt to EBITDA has been about uh, 1.6 over the last 13 years. 
And in that industry, 5.5 or less is considered safe. But that is how conservative management is because they know that 40% of the business is from a cyclical commodity-driven and economically uh, sensitive industry. And so that's essentially why NFG, which is really uh, 60% of the cash flow is from regulated uh, uh, businesses, either uh, direct regulated gas utilities or midstream also regulated under long-term contract with uh, investment grade, strong counterparties, including other utilities. And so that's essentially why those are like the only six uh, energy names that I would consider. Uh, UGI uh, is a dividend champion uh, uh, utility, very fast growing. We're also a fan of, it's essentially a gas utility that also is uh, America's largest propane distributor. I suppose you could say that's a seventh one that we're a fan of. So really, those are the only seven that I would consider because you simply, you need that conservative balance sheet. You need that very well-covered dividend. NFG, for example, has about a 50% payout ratio versus 75% safe in that industry. UGI, I believe the consensus for this year is about 60% uh, versus 75% safe. So you can basically see that the way that these dividend champions and dividend kings achieve that status is by being extra just always focus on risk and being conservative because yes times can be good the economy is growing all prices were once a hundred dollars those days are gone forever and they've basically been preparing for this kind of recession not necessarily this pandemic no one saw that coming but they knew a recession was coming and they were preparing for that and these are the seven strongest safest names that i have absolute confidence in uh, in terms of the, the highest dividend cut risk, basically, from from any of them is, is basically around 3%. So one in 33 chance that uh, the dividends will be cut in this pandemic. And so, as again, you focus on that quality first, prudent valuation and risk management always. And in terms of uh, risk management, 20% energy exposure at most is what we recommend. 15% in any individual industry. For example, midstream, if you wanted to be uh, 7% is the most we recommend for any blue chip exposure. So if you wanted to say uh, own something like Enterprise, uh, uh, TC Energy and Enbridge, you could equally weight 5% in each. And that is as high as I would go simply because uh, you you never know uh, what the next black swan could be. Uh, you know, hopefully five years from now, energy is likely to recover. But we we have just no idea that, you know, next recession might be 10 years away. It could be five years away. It could be 20 years away. So, you know, so basically, again, focus on quality, focus on safety, focus on the, the best managed names that can uh, prove and adapt to challenges over time. And so that's uh, that's basically it for our uh, This Time is Different themed uh, roundtable podcast for the Dividend Kings. Thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we've given you some great insights into just the higher level thinking about uh, long-term risks and sound value investing, as well as some actionable ideas from Nicholas Ward, Brad Thomas, and myself. So I hope you join us for future podcasts in the future and please have a wonderful weekend.